Well, if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Psalm 115, Psalm chapter 115. As you turn there, I just want to let you know that I had the joy of being away for a part of this week up to Calgary, uh, Canada for an annual board meeting. We uh, support Shannon and Danielle Hurley, as you guys know, in Kubamatwe, Africa. And uh, so he has a board meeting due to the fact that there's some donors in Canada that also invite him to do a missions conference each and every January. And so we had the difficulty of worshiping God in the beautiful snow. Yesterday morning, it was minus four degrees. Uh, We got to do one day of skiing there in Banff. uh, But the majority of our time was focused on supporting what uh, God's doing in Africa. And I'm just pleased to let you know things are going very well. God is really blessing uh, Legacy Christian Academy there in Uganda. God's blessing the Bible Institute. Uh, God has uh, given the Hurleys an incredible inreach to the community through their church. Uh, Kuba Matwe Community Church is the name of that church. And it's just a phenomenal ministry to be a part of. Tim Burrell and I both have the pleasure of serving on that board, along with Dan Dumas and uh, your former pastor, Scott Artavanis, and uh, many other godly men. And we just had a fantastic uh, time together. I was preaching actually yesterday morning because the, the board meeting ended with a missions conference. And so each one of the board members took uh, one session to preach. And so I had the joy of uh, participating in that and then hopping on a plane uh, yesterday to come back to be with you. Nowhere I'd rather be on a Sunday morning than with you. There's nowhere else I'd rather worship. There's no other preacher I'd rather hear than the one you get to hear. No, just kidding. Uh, But I just love being with you guys. It's just uh, something is going on in my heart, just creating a great love and a passion for you. So thank you for allowing uh, me to serve as your pastor. Thank you for allowing me to be here with you this morning. What we're doing is we're continuing a little two-part series on happiness, right? So last week, if you were with us, the title of the sermon was Your Greatest Happiness. And no, it was not a Joel Osteen message, right? It was a God-honoring message about our greatest happiness is found in God. And so we spent our entire time together last week talking about the truths of Scripture that point us to find our satisfaction and our joy in Christ and in God. And so this morning, we're asking the question, well, if it's true that our greatest happiness is in God, then the question must be asked, well, where is God's greatest happiness? happiness. And so this sermon will attempt to answer that question. If our greatest happiness is in God, the question again is, well, where is God's greatest happiness found? And so we're going to be in some selected scriptures, but I thought we would start off by looking at Psalm 115, 1 through 3. Here we read, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning as we dive into our sermon today. I pray that you would illuminate our minds to understand your scripture. I pray as we tackle these theological concepts, we would see them clearly and simply, and they would have a profound impact on our hearts as we find our joy today not in ourselves, not in our finances, not in our health, not in our family, not even ultimately in our church, but in our great God. And I pray that today as we look at this topic of your greatest happiness, that you would enlighten us and that you would teach us and that you would help us to learn what you want us to learn today so that we can live how you want us to live. And I pray these truths in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we started off last week's sermon asking the question, well, why, why do people do what they do? People tackle all kind of different challenges and, and, uh, and objects in life as they live throughout life. They do different things. And uh, we, we talked about how some people love to eat broccoli. And so they're kind of, kind of health nuts. And we asked the question, why would anybody go through the, uh, through the rigid diet of eating a lot of healthy food? And the answer was because they want to. Uh, we asked, why, why would people participate in an Ironman competition, an extreme sport uh, that requires lots of physical training? And the answer we gave is because people, people want to do that. Why, why would anybody get married and have kids? Because they want to. I, I wanted to, and I thank God for that. Uh, why would anybody ever be a neurosurgeon? We talked about a pediatric neurosurgeon requires 18 years of schooling after high school. Uh, why would anybody get into an argument? Why would anybody disobey their parents? 
I even asked you last week, why would anybody do missions to sell their home here in Southern California as the Hurleys did to move to a village in Africa? I even asked you, why would anybody commit suicide? And the answer to all those questions was, is because people do what they want because they believe it will bring them the greatest happiness. In any given situation, the motive of the human heart is, I want to be happy. And so because I want to be happy, I'm going to do whatever I do in life so that I can be happy. And so we started asking the question, well, is that really true? Is that true? And I gave you a quote last week from the theologian Blaise Pascal. Again, all of this material uh, was brought to my attention through John Piper and his book, Desiring God, which I leaned heavily upon for both of these sermons. But there's also other uh, sources we could go to, including Augustine, including uh, Jonathan Edwards, C.S. Lewis. Uh, how about the Bible? That's where it really comes from, right? But we looked at this quote by Blaise Pascal last week that says this, quote, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. They will never take the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. And so we talked about even those who commit suicide and hang themselves, they're still trying to attain to what they think would make them happy. And we tried to last week examine that and say, well, is that a, is that a good thing? Is it a good thing for people to want to be happy? And I actually affirm that I believe it is a good thing. I believe that God created us as human beings to be happy. And we talked a little bit about the difference between happiness and joy. Sometimes as Christians, we say, well, happiness is just kind of based on circumstances and joy is built on Christ. And while I agree with that clarification, I think that we've got to be careful that somehow we think that any type of emotional happiness in God is somehow uh, manipulative or is somehow worldly or is somehow not honoring God. That's just not true. And so we tried to establish all of this last week by looking at a, a theological position, which has been labeled as Christian hedonism. Remember that? We talked a little bit about hedonism as the uh, idea of like, well, well the, the doctrine that pleasure or happiness is the chief goal of life. So an unbeliever, a pagan, someone who doesn't believe in God would say, well, my whole point in life is just to be happy. That's hedonism. A Christian is someone who repents of their sins and turns to Christ and follows Christ, they put their faith in Christ, they, they, they make Christ the Lord of their life, and they follow all the teachings of the Bible. Well, the problem is sometimes we want to do things we, we, we know we're not supposed to. We still have remnants of our sinful nature that tempts us to sin. And so there's a, 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 a theological term called Christian hedonism, which would say a Christian uh, ought to pursue their greatest pleasure, but their greatest pleasure will only be found in God. And so Christian hedonism is the idea that as a born-again believer, one who has turned from your sins and turned to Christ, you ought to be pursuing every day your greatest pleasure. But pursue your greatest pleasure in that which truly satisfies. Pursue your greatest pleasure in God. In fact, this would be consistent with the Westminster Confession written back in the 1600s by a group of theologians where they asked the question, well, what is the goal of life? What is the chief end of man? And the answer they gave was the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, if you've ever been catechized, you know exactly what we're talking about, right? It's the first question in the catechism. What's, what's our point on earth? What is our chief goal? Answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And then we ask the question of, well, what, what's up with that word and? Like, is it one goal or two goals? In other words, can sometimes we glorify God by obeying him and sometimes we enjoy him? Or should those two, what seems to be maybe two different goals, be one goal? Because the chief end of man, as the writers of the Confessions state here is one in the same end. And so I appreciate the way that Piper kind of changed that a little bit, if you will, by saying the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. In other words, our obedience to God, 
and our joy in God are not two different things. It's not like sometimes you obey him and sometimes you enjoy him. It ought to be if we're really pursuing our greatest pleasure and our deepest happiness, then we obey God, we glorify God by enjoying him. That we, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Let me ask you a question. How, how, would you, how, how do you glorify God? Is it only by obeying him or is it also by enjoying him? How, how would you glorify a cook? There was a, a chef who prepared a great meal. Do you glorify the chef by simply eating the food and you're just like, I've got to get this down. This is supposed to be a nice dinner. I'm just scarfing this food down. Is the cook glorified in you just simply eating the food or is the, the chef glorified in you enjoying the process of eating the food? Just ask any mom, right? When you prepare that dinner, do you prefer your kids just to be like, I'm going to get this down? Arr! Or do you prefer them saying, oh, mommy, this is delicious. You're a great cook. I love you, mom, and I love this dish. Can I have seconds? Right? Which way do you feel more glorified? Just if they eat it or if they magnify their delight in the process of eating it. Or we could ask the question, how do you glorify a movie director? Do you glorify a movie director by reluctantly going to a movie? Or do you glorify a movie director by enjoying the act of watching the movie? That every scene and every part of the movie, you're delighting in it because you enjoy it so much. We could say, how do you glorify the love of your life? By forcing yourself to spend time with your wife? Or is it by enjoying every moment that you have together? Lisa and I uh, took her with me to Canada, so we enjoyed a little time just together, just traveling on an airplane without having five kids. That's, that's a delight. Uh, just spending a little bit of time together, not waking up throughout the night. That's a delight. But we, we spend time together. It, you know, it's kind of like that illustration. Uh, forgive me for its overuse, but in Desiring God, Kuiper uses that illustration. Maybe I'll just personalize it for you, right? Uh, my wife and I will be celebrating our 12th wedding anniversary this year. And so what if I uh, showed up at home uh, on, our, on our anniversary, May the 1st, and I, and I get off work a little early, and I, and I, I show up uh, to the house, and I buy a dozen roses, and I, and I ring the doorbell. And so Lisa comes to the door, and she opens the door, and she's like, Adam, you know, what, what, what's up? She kind of looks at me funny because I don't typically ring the doorbell at my own house. And, uh, and I take the, the dozen roses I have for her, and I pull them out, and I show her the roses. And she looks at me kind of funny, and she says, oh, Adam, Oh, they're beautiful. Why did you? And if I were to say, it's my duty, right? That, that would be like uh, not a good thing, right? The, the, the point is, it's not just by doing our duty that glorifies our wife. Back, back up a minute and that same illustration, I were to, you know, ring the doorbell and she comes and opens the door and I, and I show her the roses and she says, Adam, they're beautiful. Why did you? And I said, honey, uh, nothing makes me more happy than spending time with you. I wanted to give this to you because I love you. And I've arranged for us to, to go out on a hot date tonight. And so uh, let's go out and enjoy celebrating our anniversary. Uh, which one of those two would glorify my wife more? Right? Would it be it's my duty or the fact I'm communicating to her? You know, what? I delight in spending time with you. And what we're trying to understand is that Christianity is not only about Christians doing their duty. There's some churches and some people who are about, well, the Christian life is tough and it's hard, and that's true. But self-denial is not an end in itself. The reason we deny ourselves is because we want to find a greater joy, a greater desire, a, a greater uh, fulfillment of our desire in God. And so we've got to understand that it's about not only doing our duty as Christians, but also delighting in God, that we would enjoy him. Okay, so that was all of like last week's sermon, right? The idea of Christian hedonism and that you find your greatest joy in God. Your greatest happiness is found in God. Well, this morning, we're going to ask that second question. And the question is, well, where does God find his greatest happiness? I mean, if, if your greatest happiness is found in God, and we want to be good theologians, then we got to ask the question, well, where does God find his greatest happiness? And the way I see it, there's really only two answers you could give to that question. Where does God find his greatest happiness? The first answer would be he finds his greatest pleasure in his creation. That somehow in the, the things that he's created, the beautiful earth and the mountains and the ocean, that he finds his greatest joy in enjoying his own creation. And that's what, how a lot of people would answer that question. 
that God's a God of nature, that God created us. We're part of his creation, so God finds his greatest happiness in us. That would be a man-centered view of where God finds his happiness, that there's nothing God would rather do than to spend time with you. And there's some truth to that, but we're asking the ultimate question. Does God find his ultimate joy and happiness in creation? That's one way to answer it. The second way to answer it is this, or does God find his greatest happiness in himself? He finds his greatest happiness in the glory of his own name, the supremacy of his own character. Does he find his greatest joy in us or in him? And so today, what I want to do is demonstrate to you, I believe the answer to that question is the latter, that God finds his greatest happiness in God, not in what he has created. So that's what this sermon is all about. In fact, to say it another way, look at this next slide on your PowerPoint, say it another way, the chief end of God is to glorify God by enjoying himself forever. We talked about the chief end of man, so we're asking in this sermon, well, what's the chief end of God? And I'm saying to you, I believe that the scriptures teach, which is what we'll be getting into, is that the chief end of God is to glorify God by enjoying himself forever. Now, if you've never heard this material, you've never maybe read Piper's Desiring God, maybe you've never read The Weight of Glory Sermons by C.S. Lewis, maybe you've never read The Pleasures of God by Jonathan Edwards, this may be a brand new concept for you, and I want to make sure that you understand that the reason this may sound a little bit strange to you is because it, it takes you and I totally out of the equation. We kind of live in a man-centered evangelical world that's all about, oh, God delights in you, and he loves you, and he made you special, and I would agree to some extent that those statements are true. But it's not, you, you are not his ultimate joy, and I'm going to tell you why. And so sometimes hearing this type of God-focused uh, cause and delight that God uh, glorifies himself by enjoying his own name forever, it may hurt your pride a little bit. It, it may cause you to think that God is being a little bit egotistical. I mean, how can God think he's the most important thing in the universe? Well, the answer is because he is the most supreme being in the universe. And so for you and I to think somehow, well, I think I'm all that in a bag of chips, we would say, well, hey, dude, you're not humble. You're prideful. But for God to say, look, I am supreme and I demand worship and praise is not being egotistical. It's being faithful to his own name. And to say that, to say that God's chief goal isn't focused on his creation, but on himself sounds uh, a little bit like, can that really uh, be correct? And it would, it would, it would be, uh, if God were not perfect, or if he were not worthy of our attention, if he were not worthy of our worship, then it would be wrong to think of it that way. But the truth is, he is. He, 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 he does not fall short of measuring up to infinite holiness. And he has a majestic presence and a divine nature. And so we've got to understand this morning that the bedrock of your greatest happiness is not God's allegiance to us, but God's allegiance to himself. If God was not infinitely devoted to the preservation, display, and enjoyment of his own glory, then we could have no hope of finding happiness in him. But if he does, in fact, employ all of his sovereign power and infinite wisdom to maximize the enjoyment of his own glory, then we do have a foundation on which to stand and to rejoice. And so I know, again, this may be perplexing. That's why we're going to have a whole sermon just on this. And let me try to boil it down for you this way. I'm going to give you four headings to explain God's greatest happiness. Again, this is taken from chapter one of the book, Desiring God. The end of it kind of summarizes the whole chapter. I recommend you that book heartily. But here's the first heading I want to give to you this morning. It's this. Number one, the happiness of God in God is the foundation of our happiness in God. That just kind of summarizes all that I've been saying so far, right? The happiness of God in God is the foundation of our happiness in God. Let's talk about that. And here's your first blank if, you're, if you are taking notes in your outline today. It's this. God is happy because he is sovereign. 
Okay? God is happy because he is sovereign. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 135. You're already there maybe in 115. Turn over to 135, verse 6, and I want you to understand that part of why God is happy in God is because God can do and he does do whatever he wants. I mean, wouldn't that make you happy if you could do whatever you wanted? Well, guess what? God does whatever he wants, and it's never in contradiction to his holy character. He is not a capricious God. He is not a, a God who is tempted by anything outside of himself. And so Psalm 135, 6 says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. The part of the reason that God is happy is because he always gets his way. He does whatever he wants at any time, both in the heavens and on earth, in the depths of the sea. God is God. He is sovereign. He is in control. And this adds to his happiness. He is content in himself. This makes him happy. He does whatever he wants to do in accordance with what will bring him great joy. And in the same time, that's actually what brings us great joy. If God were not sovereign, if he were not able to do whatever he wanted, then that means that somebody would do something to God that wouldn't be what God wanted. Does that make sense? And if somebody can do something to God that is against his desire or decree in the ultimate sense, then God would no longer be God because there would be somebody more powerful than God. And so the idea is that he does what he wants. So this is what Psalm 115 also says. We read it at the beginning of the service, but look at 115, 1 through 3. Not unto us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. We're starting to get an idea. It's not about us. It's about God. It's not about the creation. It's about the creator. It's not about God finding his happiness in us. It's about God finding his happiness in God. So it's not unto us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. God is God. He's sovereign. He sits on the throne. There is no thwarting his plan. He's sovereign over all things. In fact, your next blank says this. God is sovereign over calamity. All right, it'll be easy for us to think, well, I like the idea of God being sovereign as long as things are going well. As long as he's showing to be a God of love and a God of order from the way I understand love and order, then I'm happy to go along with you. But what about when calamity happens? Are you saying God's still sovereign then? Well, that's exactly what the Bible teaches us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we understand that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, the NASB translates that as God causes all things to work together for good, right? For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So if you're a Christian, everything that happens in your life is for God's glory and for your good. If there's an earthquake, if there's a tornado, if there's a hurricane, if there's a car wreck, if there's anything that could possibly happen in life, God is still God. And he's working in that trial, in that circumstance, in your sickness, for his glory and for your good. So the idea here is that God is sovereign is where part of where he gets his joy from. And I'm just trying to make sure we understand he's sovereign over, sovereign over everything, including calamity. We could even say number two, the next blank, God is sovereign over evil. He is sovereign over evil evil. Maybe you just need to see this one if you haven't been there in a while, but turn to Genesis 50, 20. This is the story of Joseph who was sold into slavery, ends up going to, to Egypt, right? He was second in command in Egypt after going through Potiphar's house and then back into prison. Finally, he's there second in command uh, with Pharaoh. His brothers come to buy grain because there's a famine in Egypt. They don't recognize Joseph because he's wearing all his of Egyptian garb and he's speaking, you know, and, and not in Hebrew to them. And then finally, uh, he makes it known that this is Joseph, their little brother, who they sold into slavery, and they're scared. They're scared to death because he has every right at this point to, to maybe kill them or put them into slavery. And instead, Joseph says this in Genesis 50, 20. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. You understand that, right? When, the, when his brothers sold him into slavery, they meant it for evil. They wanted to get Joseph out of their life. In fact, they almost killed him, and they put him in a pit. They tore his coat of many colors. They sprinkled it with blood. They gave it to his dad and said, he's dead, and a wild animal has eaten him. 
I mean, they, they wanted him out of his life. And so Joseph is acknowledging that. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Well, how could it be the sinful men of these brothers who are completely meaning evil? How could God use that for good? Because that's what God tells us. And he explains it even here. But God meant it for good to do what? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It's almost as if God is saying, hey, look, I knew there was a famine in the land. I knew that the Israelites wouldn't have enough to eat. I knew I needed to place you in Egypt so that you could be the controller of the grain in order to save up the grain from the seven prosperous years so that when the day of famine come, that I could keep a lot of people alive. I needed you here to continue the line of Christ. I needed you here to continue the Jewish mission on earth. I needed you here. And so while your brothers did what they did for evil, God meant it for good. And so we can create, take great delight today in that whatever happens in your life, even when you're sinned against, and somebody means it for evil, God still means it for good. You say, well, Adam, can't we say that God allows it for good? You could say that if you want. I don't think that's wrong to say that. I'm just trying to say, according to this verse, it's the same verb. You meant evil against me. God meant it for good. In other words, God ordains all things. He doesn't just ordain some things and not ordain other things as if they happen by chance. No, he's either a God who's sovereign over all or he's not sovereign at all, right? And so we know that God is sovereign over calamity. He's sovereign over evil. The third one says this, and maybe this is the best way to kind of pull it all together, is, is that God is sovereign over the cross. We want to talk about evil and calamity. What's the, 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 the worst thing that's ever happened? In one sense, you would have to say the cross. That's awful that, that the sinless son of God would be hung uh, you know, on a cross and killed as a criminal. Uh, to think of that is, just blows your mind. That's the most evil thing that could ever be done. And yet we understand in Acts 2.23, if you'll look at that reference, in Acts 2.23, this is exactly what we, what we read here by the author Luke. He says this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so he's saying, hey, what you guys did was wrong, but this was according to the foreknowledge of God. This was according to the predetermined plan of God. This was according to God's sovereignty. In other words, it wasn't Pilate or Judas or the Romans who ultimately had Jesus die. It pleased the Lord to crush his son. Isaiah 53, right? So the idea here is that God is sovereign over calamity. God is sovereign over evil. God is sovereign over the cross. And those truths come about to help us understand why God finds his greatest happiness in God is because he's sovereign. He does whatever he wants. He does whatever he pleases. And it brings him glory. And it's ultimately for our good. Now, the second uh, truth here about God finding his greatest happiness in God, B, on your outline is this, not only is God sovereign, but God is happy because he is holy. God is happy because he is holy. There's no sin in the heart of our God. We read in 1 Samuel 2, 2, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And so we understand that God is the only being who has ever been without sin, right? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Godhead, God's the only being who's ever been. There is no one holy like the Lord. Holiness, by the way, leads to your happiness. Anytime you're in sin, you are going to be confounded with the re repercussions and the consequences of your sin, which will never lead to happiness. So no wonder God's ultimately happy in himself because he is the only supreme sinless being in the universe. And so God is happy because he's sovereign. God is happy because he's holy. See in the outline, God is happy because he is glorious. God is happy because he is glorious. Psalm 104, 31 says this, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. And so there we see the glory of the Lord enduring forever. He's glory, glorious and that he rejoices in his works. Uh, listen to how Piper says it again. Quote, God's own glory is uppermost in his own affections. In everything he does, his purpose is to preserve and display that glory. To say his glory is uppermost 
in his own affections means that he puts a greater value on it than on anything else. He delights in his glory above all things. Now, I hope that you're getting this. The idea is that if God delighted in anything else other than himself, then God would be an idolater. You understand that? If God is taking delight in creation, for example, he's no longer worshiping the most supreme thing in the universe. He's worshiping creation. If God found his greatest happiness in you, he's no longer worshiping the glory of his own name. He's now finding his delight in you. So God must find his own happiness and his own delight in that which is most supreme. Just like you and I must find our own happiness and our own delight in that which is most supreme. That's where God finds his greatest happiness and his greatest delight and in that which is the greatest supreme delight in the universe, which is himself. And if he found his glory in anything else, he would be an idolater. That simply cannot be. And so we must understand that the foundation of our happiness in God is the fact that God finds his happiness in God. That's the whole sermon right there, but here's a couple other ways to say it. Here's number two, okay? The second heading which describes God's greatest happiness is this. Number two, if God did not joyfully uphold and display his glory, the foundation of our joy would be gone. Okay, so if God's not doing this, if he's not exalting himself and displaying his glory, and if he's not not doing what he's doing, then we no longer have a foundation for joy. Maybe we could say it this way, your next blank. God glorifies his own name. Okay, God glorifies his own name. In fact, turn to Isaiah 42.8. Isaiah 42.8, so we can better see this. This is a profound statement that Isaiah records representing the, the words of God. He says this in Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Now, that's a profound verse telling us, again, about, about God, right? In fact, I would say that verse of Isaiah 42.8 tells us two things about God. Number one, it tells us that God's not giving his glory up. Right? He's not going to give it up. He says, look at verse 8 again. He says, my glory I give, uh, my glory, uh, I give to another, to, to no other. My glory I give to no other, right? So he's not going to give his glory up. The second thing it tells us about his glory is nobody can take it from him, Right? I mean, he's not going to give his glory up. Certainly nobody can take God's glory from him. And so we've got to understand that God glorifies his own name as that which is most supreme in the universe. He will not give his praise to graven idols. He will not praise you or me or any part of creation over and above himself. What will he praise? What will he rejoice in? What will he glory in? He will glory in himself. Or to say it another way, look at B, God acts for his own sake. He acts for his own sake. Look at Isaiah 48. Maybe you're there in 42. Turn over to 48, verse 11, where God says this, For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Now remember, God doesn't give his glory to another, and nobody can take it from him. So it's for his own sake that he does what he does. He doesn't ultimately do what he does for your sake. It's not what the scripture is emphasizing here. That's why it's repeated twice, right? For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. He will not profane his name by worshiping something else less valuable than himself. Or to say it this way, quote, God is the one being in all the universe for whom seeking his own praise is the ultimately loving act. For him, self-exaltation is the highest virtue. When he does all things for the praise of his glory, he preserves for us and offers to us the only thing in all the world which can satisfy our longings. God is for us, and the foundation of his love, of this love, is that God has been, is now, and always will be for himself. Once we start to understand that, it starts to hopefully give us greater delight in God, to realize that God commands that we delight in him because he delights in him. Maybe we could ask this question, see there in your outline, did Christ die 
than for us or for God. Back in 1998, I went to a conference called Passion. It was by Louis Giglio and um, John Piper was there. I'd never heard of, of, of either one of those guys. I was in college, and I went to Austin, Texas in January of 1998 to attend this big national conference, about 7,000 collegians there, uh, called Passion. And they, they had incredible worship, and then they introduced the speaker. It's John Piper, never heard of him, had zero reference with who this guy was. And he stands up, and he, and he asks the question, did Christ die for you, or did Christ die for God? And he just kind of paused, and I sat there, and I thought a minute. I'm like, that's the dumbest question I've ever heard. Of course Christ died for me. What are you talking about, you moron? Don't you know anything? Like, Christ died for me. I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. I can only be saved by a righteous sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ died for me. So that was what I was thinking in my head, thinking, man, where did they get this nut from, you know? And then he said, Christ didn't ultimately die for you, but he died for God. And I just kind of sat there, and I'm like, what are you talking about? And he preached a sermon something like this, and I didn't get it. I'm just like, the whole time there, I'm just sitting there, I'm confused. I'm like, well, what about this, and what about this, and what about this? So I bought his book, Desiring God, and spent time reading it and rereading it until finally I was able to better understand kind of what he was saying. And I think what he's saying here is just simply that, that mindset. I mean, in some ways, you could answer both. He, he died for you. Of course he died for you, so that he could save you. But the ultimate purpose, kind of what we're saying here, isn't a man-centered focus of redemption, as gloriful as that is. The idea is that he ultimately died for himself. In fact, turn with me to Romans 3, Romans 3, 23, and tell me, tell me what you think about this, just in that context. Romans 3, 23, we know and love for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Listen to this next sentence. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, he's saying, I believe in Romans here, Paul writing, is that the purpose of redemption wasn't ultimately for you, but it was ultimately to show Christ's righteousness, or rather, it was to show God's righteousness, verse 25. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. What kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And so again, I think what we're realizing is that even the cross ultimately took place for the glory of God. Because God is glorified. Of course, he's glorified in saving us. But we have to understand that ultimately it's not about salvation as much as it's about the glory of God. Because God will choose to save some, but not others. And so we can't put the ultimate um, importance of the universe on the salvation of individuals even as we can on the glory of God. Now again, you might have to wrestle through that a little bit because I would say, in a sense, God is glorified through saving us. But I think the point we're trying to make is the quote there at the bottom of your outline where Piper writes this, quote, our Christian mindset is so skewed by natural and secular man-centeredness that we can barely comprehend the love, or we, we can barely comprehend or love the God-centeredness of the cross of Christ. Exactly what we're talking about. The, Christ, uh, the cross of Christ has a God-centered goal, not just a man-centered one. All right, let me move on. The third heading about God's happiness being found in God is this. Number three, God's pursuit of praise from us and our pursuit of pleasure in him are in perfect harmony. Okay, this is what I'm trying to explain with this point is the fact that God pursues our praise and we should be pursuing our pleasure in praising him if we want to be truly happy. In other words, God's desire is to be praised and our desire to praise him should never be in conflict against each other, but in concert 
with each other. Jonathan Edwards says it like this, your next blank. God is glorified within himself two ways. God is glorified within himself two ways. And then the next click says this. The first way is by appearing to himself in his own perfect idea of himself or in his son who is the brightness of his glory. Okay, so God glorified, he's glorified within himself in two ways. The first way is by appearing to himself as being who he really is. The second way, number two, next click, is by enjoying and delighting in himself or in his Holy Spirit. Okay, that's Jonathan Edwards' way of saying God finds his greatest happiness in himself, by appearing to himself and by delighting in himself. Okay, and then Edwards says this, and you'll just have to kind of jot these down, and I understand you'll probably study it a little bit more later, but B, the next click, says this, God glorifies himself toward the creatures in two ways. So the first one was God glorifies himself within himself in two ways. Now Jonathan Edwards says God glorifies himself toward the creatures in two ways. The first way is by appearing to their understanding, by appearing to their understanding. In other words, God glorifies himself toward his creatures by opening their eyes to who he is, by quickening their understanding so they could really know God through Christ. So God glorifies himself toward the creatures by appearing to their understanding. Number two, the second way God glorifies himself toward the creatures is this one, number two, in communication of himself to their hearts and in their rejoicing and delighting in and enjoying the manifestations of which he makes of himself. Again, you're going to take a little time maybe to study it. This is what I want you to see. The way that God is glorified within himself, that's A, and the way that God is glorified within his creatures, that's B, is one in the same way. He's glorified within himself by appearing to himself and delighting in himself. He's glorified within his creatures by appearing to their understanding and having them delight in and enjoy the manifestations of which he makes of himself. In other words, as Christians, we should love the fact that God glorifies his own name above everything else in the universe. As, as we really understand the truth of what Scripture is teaching, we shouldn't be like, oh, I wish God delighted in me more than he did his own name. I mean, if that's what you're thinking, then you're totally man-centered, right? We should, it, it ought to bring us joy that, wow, God glorifies his own name as the highest thing in the universe, and that makes me happy because he is most supreme, and he glorifies himself, and as he exalts his own name, then it just kind of blows my mind, and it gets me out of this earthly-focused type of life, and it helps me to think through Psalms, like Psalm 103, where we understand that those who see this and delight in it, God is more glorified than when those who only see it. Psalm 103, uh, verse 1 says, Blessed be the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. That would be one example of where God is telling us to bless him. He's telling us to delight in himself because he delights in himself. It's like what Psalm 32, 11 says. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. So God glorifies himself by exalting himself. And as you see him exalting himself, it makes you want to glorify him and to be glad in him. In other words, God is saying, bless me, love me, praise me, worship me. And in doing so, God gets the glory and you get the joy. The more you exalt God as God exalts God, the more joyful you will be because the, your joy in God is based on the foundation of God's joy in God. So just to wrap this whole thing up, all right, I know that, that point three is a little heady, so you might need to spend a little time there, but this wraps it up for us. Number four, we've already said this, but I just wanted to end with this simple statement, for God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. This is what we said last week. I'm just saying it again this week, and I want to make sure you're getting it. Again, A, 
glorifying God is enjoying him and obeying him. What we're saying by the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. We're saying that you've got to do both of those things, right? Glorifying God, it's enjoying him and it's obeying him. And we looked again last week at Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And if you take all of this into consideration, I would say, well, what is the desire of your heart? We typically, again, look at Psalm 37, 4 and be like, well, I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to do this. So as long as I just kind of delight in God, then I can do all the things I want. Well, that's wrong. That's a man-centered usage of the verse. The verse should be say, think, thought of as like, well, my greatest desire is to be happy in God. There's nothing greater on the planet. And so as I delight myself in the Lord, then I will find my desires being fulfilled because I'm delighting in him. And so the greatest desire of my heart is God. Uh, Jonathan Edwards explains it this way, quote, the end of creation is that the creation might glorify God. Now, what is glorifying God but a rejoicing at that glory that he has displayed? The happiness of the creature consists in rejoicing in God, by which also God is magnified and exalted. And so we've got to understand that we're finding, again, our joy in obeying him. And it shouldn't be seen as burdensome. We talked about how the love of God is, is, is uh, keeping his commandments, and we shouldn't see that as a burden. If we're understanding it rightly, we should see that as a delight. B, God wants you to obey his commands because they bring him glory and you joy. So just one more reminder out of John 15 that we looked at last week, 9 through 11, where Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. The problem is, a lot of Christians will take verses 9 and 10, and they'll say, see there? Being a Christian is all about obeying his commandments, to which I would say a hearty amen. I would never tell someone, don't obey God's commandments. But I think what we're missing out on so many times is those who have a dutiful-filled Christian discipline is we forget what verse 11 says. You can't separate this in the Bible. The idea is like, yes, we should abide in Christ and keep his commandments just like Jesus abided in his Father and kept his commandments. But verse 11 of John 15 says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. You see, your joy doesn't come from anything outside of God. It comes from God, and it comes precisely from obeying God. And as you obey God and all that he's called you to do, you will find your joy completed. And so the idea here, again, is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him in every moment of every day. If your marriage isn't what you want it to be, find your satisfaction in God. If your kids aren't doing what you've asked them to do, find your satisfaction in God. If work's not going like you want it to go, find your satisfaction in God. And understand that he's ordained all the trials, all the difficulties in your life, so that you could find your happiness in God. Maybe a way to take this home and just to think about it a little bit more would be these take-home points here at the end. The first one says this, have you been living your life thinking that God is made more happy in your obedience or in his existence. You understand that? Are you gotten caught into the lie that somehow that your greatest goal on earth or that God's greatest happiness on earth is simply in your obedience or is God more exalted and satisfied in his existence? Because here's the deal. If God found his joy in our obedience, then we wouldn't have a happy God. We don't obey all the time. So thank God that he is who he is, not based on our obedience, but he's, he is who he is based on his own existence. And as we think about that, it helps us to, to want to obey him with even a deeper and a greater passion because we just love the fact that he exists glorifying himself, whether we're obedient or not. Or two, think about it this way, does realizing God's happiness is found in God make you feel more secure or more insecure? Because the temptation is when you first kind of look at this, you might think, well, I, I don't know about that. I need to think about that. I, I mean, you mean God doesn't delight in me more than anything else in the universe? That could make you feel insecure. You're like, well, he doesn't delight in me. I, I thought it was all about me. 
I thought this was all about him saving me. Well, that, that's part of what it's about, but he's actually more about his own name and about his own glory and about his own namesake. And so you should find your security not in the fact that God saves you so much as in the fact of, of that God's happiness is found in God. That ought to make you feel very secure because if his happiness is found in God, he will never waver. He will never falter, and he won't become an idolater. And so we can actually have great security in the fact that God delights in God. Lastly, what is the best way for you to apply the truth that your greatest happiness is found in God, as well as God's greatest happiness is found in God this year? What I'm asking you to do is, well, how can you apply all of this in your life? If it's true that your greatest happiness is found in God— and God's greatest happiness is found in God, I'm asking you to think through in your small groups and in your families, and as you discuss this little bit of a heady theological sermon, what, what is the implication? How will that change how you do life? And hopefully part of the answers are, well, because you're going to be doing life for the glory of God, no longer for the glory of self. You begin to have a God-centered view in all that you do instead of a man-centered view in all that you do. You begin to realize it's all about God's name, and he does what he does for his own sake. And as we delight in that, you find your joy because you realize that God's greatest happiness is not found in you, but in God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to spend a little time today in an important theological truth as we've seen here in Scripture. And I pray, God, that as we leave this morning, that we would just take some time and think through, maybe reread through these verses, maybe, uh, maybe buy the book Desiring God or other uh, works by different theologians that help maybe spell this out with more clarity than I've been able to do this morning. God, I pray that you would help us as a church delight in God. I pray that we would find our happiness in God. I pray that we would see the security of the truth that God finds his happiness in God. And that would just cause us to, to sit around and to meditate on your grandeur and on your greatness and on your glory in new and in fresh ways that would help waken us up as lazy evangelicals that are sometimes just satisfied with what we already know. And I pray that we would want to explore to a greater depth and to a greater level your magnitude and your greatness as we meditate on the scripture. So God, thank you for saving us and thank you for opening up our hearts to the gospel. And I pray that you would continue to open our hearts to the immense truth that you are satisfied in yourself. That you find your joy and your happiness, not in us, but in God. Help us to understand that. Help us to live life in light of that. Help us to leave here today meditating on your character on your attributes, on the gospel. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.